Welcome to Brilliance Realised, a podcast series from Sheridan Worldwide, featuring members of our team, our partners, our clients and specialist guests. very warm welcome to everybody listening to this podcast and we're on our final recording on the subject of belonging and inclusion and today I have got an incredible woman for you to listen to it's a colleague as well we've got Helen May from the Sheridan's team Helen and I met as part of the faculty and We've not spent much time together, actually, but I I have learned over the the recent times that you are an author and that you have had a really great career focusing on coaching and leadership development. Very welcome to you, Helen. Thank you, Sanjia. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you on this subject. (laughs) We're both very passionate about. Excellent. Thank you. One of the things that I found out recently about you, and it was just so interesting that you have even got a website called Belonging at Work. You and I had a really interesting conversation about that kind of work and how you got into it. But I would love for people to know a bit more about all of that. What's drawn you to this work, Helen? Several different things, really. It was a a natural evolution, really, from work that I'd done in the culture space with lots of different organisations over the past 20 years. One of the things that's happened over the past Outside of the deepening polarization across the the world, one of the things that's happening in organizations is that they are recognizing that actually two things. One, that well-being is absolutely critical to people's performance and wellness at work and outside of work. And the other one is that for innovation to happen, lots of different voices have to be heard. However, I don't believe that many organizations have cracked this yet. So there's still people leading with the typical diversity and inclusion programs. Whereas in order for every voice to matter, you need to have an approach that's different. I ended up actually then looking at, from a professional perspective, neurodiversity includes those people who have neurodivergent conditions such as autism, ADHD, and things like that. But it also includes everybody because the neurodiversity theory is that it's exactly the same as biodiversity. We have to have a range of different thinking styles in order for communities and society to keep evolving and growing and to sustain itself. My son has ADHD and my nephew is autistic. I was also diagnosed with ADHD following a period of depression after my mum died. It's something that's quite common these days that women when they're older are being diagnosed with this. And it really sort of set me on a path of sort of a professional perspective of looking at this and what this means, some self-exploration. I also run a charity helping people, particularly young people in the transitions, such as people in apprenticeships. And I do academic research in this area as well. So at the moment, I'm looking into how you keep people with, well, young people, 16 to 18, with ADHD in apprenticeships, because if you don't keep them in those apprenticeships, the likelihood of them going on to poorer life outcomes, such as incarceration, substance abuse, and even early death is very high. So it's something that the idea of inclusion and this idea of diversity being something that's completely natural and a huge benefit to society is how I ended up going down this path. It sounds like it's it was something quite personal to you 
And often people get into this work actually because of something personal that they're having to face, but actually then it reveals to them an opportunity. And I guess we need a lot more people to step up to make the changes that we need. What do you think stops people from coming forward? I mean, I've certainly worked in organizations where large populations of minority groups will be there and the organization will want to support them. But at the same time, it still feels really difficult. What do you think's behind that barrier, I suppose, for want of a better word? I think there's several different things. Firstly, you have the false structure and bureaucracy of an organization. It's like in any political system. Instead of saying, this isn't working, how do we dismantle and rebuild? They just keep putting add-ons and doing more of the same or doing something on top of what they're already doing. And they don't start with the basics of why do people have the attitudes they have and how do we bring everybody together in this circle of belonging that includes everybody, not just the majority and not just support the minorities, that it includes everybody. So I think that's one of the other things. Organizations will always lead with process, procedure, because that's the easiest thing to measure and monitor. People always say what gets measured gets done. I always say what gets measured gets fudged. So, you know, give yourself a target. People will meet it come hell or high water because they'll get their commission or bonus based on that. So you sort of have these false successes. Another thing is that we've never really thought about all of the people involved in a process of bringing people together. One of the things that I'm very passionate about, so this is the opposite of belonging, really, is othering. And when you start to talk about people in boxes, when you start to address things in boxes, when you start to say we're supporting people in this way, we're supporting people in that way, in this area, what you tend to do then is you other the majority. So you actually, the dividing line between people or the gap between people becomes wider. And this is one of the problems with, for example, unconscious bias. I'm not a big fan of unconscious bias training. Because to me, it's a little bit like taking an x-ray of somebody, showing them what's wrong with them inside, and then not giving them any solution or cure for what to do about it. Mm -hmm. So all you do then is create anxiety. Where there's anxiety, people you know go into self-preservation mode. And so hearts and minds are not brought into any process that is designed to unify and bring people together in a way that everybody feels included. Thank you, Helen. I mean, I want to go back to a couple of things you mentioned, this this concept of othering and putting people in boxes. And I suppose if I reflect on organizations I've worked in, most of the time people are in some sort of box. And you said a bit earlier that perhaps one of the reasons these things can't work in their current form is because there are fault structures and bureaucracy. What would an alternative structure look like? One of the issues for diversity and inclusion is that it tends to be quite short-term in its thinking. It tends to be quite responsive to what's happening Mm. outside. So I'm sure you had the same as I did last year, which was an influx of organizations desperate for some trading on conversations about race Mm -hmm. in light of Black Lives Matter and the George Floyd murder. And to me, you know, it's putting a sticking plaster over a problem. It's hoping that it will go away soon. 
which you can't take a short-term view of diversity. Diversity is a humankind state. Hmm. So I often have people saying, no, we're not looking at neurodiversity yet because we're still dealing with the women. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, if there's any othering, that's it. Hmm. Rather than saying, right, let's have a look at what we have in what demographic we have in our organization. How do we go about unifying these people? Mm-hmm. How do we go about changing hearts and minds and creating understanding for everyone? Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily teaching people how to have a conversation about race. It's about teaching people to understand universal emotions that are connected to a feeling of belonging. And one of the ways in which I work with clients to do this is to think of the organization as a community, because in a community, The whole idea is you have a diverse group of people who have one common purpose and they all feel responsible and accountable for everybody's well-being. If somebody wants to, doesn't belong in that community, they exit. But that's because they have chosen to, not because the community says you're not welcome here because you don't fit into this group. I spent some time focusing on this. Really love what you're saying, Helen, about the fact that I guess it's an education about community and universal emotions and including all of those as well as that sense of purpose shared purpose in my own mind i'm wondering whether what's gone wrong really for organizations particularly those that are based in large cities Mm -hmm. comparing that to other places in the world where the way work looks and feels can be quite different and you know i'm of indian descent and i also have family in East Africa and Kenya. Mm -hmm. When I visit both of those places, certainly there is a greater culture of community. And I personally experienced that because I've had exposure to those cultures. But I always wonder, why is that not present in the UK, particularly in city built, built up areas? There is even less a sense of community in urban jungles, if you like. (laughs) Is that your experience too? What do you think is behind that? I think it's probably our British history, to be honest. I think if you compare the UK to an awful lot of other countries where they have evolved in a different way to us, this whole Britishness, this idea of Britishness and these metropolises that are ruled by money, basically, which, yes, you have everywhere in the world, but it was very much, you know, you have a look at for example, the very first office block in probably one of the first ones in the world, actually, was the East India, the East India Trading Company. Yeah. It actually stood on the site where loads of London is now. So it was very first office block. And that was, you know, we're going back to what the, the 1700s, I think, the 1800s, 1700s, it might be actually, you know, we're going back then to there. And it was exactly the same as it is now in terms of people still go into the square mile to the offices in London. They still sort of work the same sort of hours in the same sort of buildings. Now, you would have had almost exclusively white men working in that office block. Nothing else has changed. So why should that have changed too? We've just built on it. It's We always go back to the way things have, how things have been done rather than thinking about how we can create the future by dismantling some of the things that we have always done because that's how we do it. We're very traditional as British people in that sense and convincing people to do things different can be difficult. And what we saw last year with the pandemic and ongoing is still this argument of 
no, everybody should get back into the offices. And the people saying, actually, I prefer it now working from home sometimes. I don't want to be on the tube. I don't want to be in this sort of false environment all the time. I feel that we can avoid the politics by doing this. And we're at a bit of a breaking point, actually, of, you know, could this be the turning point for diversity in that sense? Because who does it suit to be in an office block? A white middle-aged man. That's where they feel most at home. They've always felt most at home there. They tend not to have the the sort of responsibilities as mothers, for example. They very often will have a wife at home who will do childcare and things. They are with their own tribe in that sense. So, you know, who's going to win? I I still don't think we know. And there are some people who, you know, are selling off office blocks, but there are other people who are saying, no, by the end of this year, we want everybody back in five days a week. If you have a problem with that, you need to speak to your line manager and HR about it, about flexible working. I think we dismantled the, the idea of community when we started on the track that we did all those years yeah. in the offices. And what you find in, I think, in the UK is that community tends to exist more in you know, in the rural areas. So I'm out in the Cotswold and you do have villages with a sense of community there or in much poorer areas where the socioeconomic status tends to be lower. And you do get that sense of community. You do get that sense of we're all in this together. And Mm -hmm. it's a shame we can't bring those two things together because then everybody benefits. I still have hope. Like you, I think that's really focusing on shaping a community is, is where it starts and an inclusive community where people have that shared sense of purpose but I also feel like people are out of touch with that or somehow there's a there's something different that happens when you enter an employed environment even if you live in in a village where there is that sense of community but when you come into work suddenly there are very different social norms so what's going to interrupt that pattern which does go back probably hundreds of years Mm -hmm. and in the work that you do, what is it that you think works? What are the strategies that organisations can adopt in the short, medium and long term? I mean, I absolutely agree with you. This is not something that can be dealt with overnight with sticking classes that we've probably done already. We have to focus much more on the long term, really creating a compelling vision for what that community needs to look like. What are your experiences with clients or even in the work that you do what is it that organizations need to change fundamentally i'll give you an example of actually somebody that we pitched to caroline sheridan night recently and this organization is largely made of ex-military white middle-aged engineers and there's a big push at the moment to get more women into engineering They've got apprenticeships to get people from different backgrounds in. There's quite a lot of neurodiversity, neurodivergent conditions in engineering as well. And, you know, they're dipping their toe in the water with this for the first time with quite a lot of fear, which is something that, you know, once we saw the brief, we got immediately that they have a one chance really to launch a program of diversity and inclusion and get it right. And This is what tends to go wrong with these things. You know, everybody's apparently, you know, (laughs) apparently lots of people in the organization were saying, oh, we're going woke now. So, you know, you've got this, if you're doing anything that is to further the cause of diversity, then you're being woke, which is a word. I don't know where it came from, but uh, (laughs) 
<laughs> I rather sickeningly associate it with Piers Morgan type, you know, and it's it doesn't do anybody any good whatsoever because it's saying this is this is an action that's backlash against what's happening because some people are feeling bothered mm-hmm. in all of this. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at that organization and what a lot of consultancies and people like us would do is go in with your typical things, you know, doing the Harvard Implicit Association test, which is like the x-ray I talked about, unconscious bias training, how to have conversations about race, inclusive leadership, all of those things, go in and do those things. And you will disenfranchise the majority. You might pique the interest of a few. And those who are in the minorities who do feel excluded at times or don't fit into this populace will feel it's tokenism. So what do you do? Well, you tap into that particular demographic. What's important to them? What do they think? You know, if they're saying we think this is woke, you say, you know, curiosity is a huge thing in belonging. It's like, why do you think things are woke? What does that mean to you? What does it, you know, what do you think about these things? What does it mean? I'm sorry to interrupt you, Helen. What on earth does woke mean? Woke means that I can't even give you a description, but people who are woke, for example, taking the knee for Black Lives Matter on the at the football. A lot of people say, oh, you're just being woke. So it's almost like tokenism doing good. Okay, right. So it's a f- sort of like an enlightened person that's now well, yes. on, so that's, on the pathway to helping. That's right. So, so <laughs> right, that, okay. that, 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 it was originally coined as a, as a word, a good word, you know, with, mm. with intent, which is about enlightenment, becoming mm. enlightened about these things. But there was then sort of taken over by the polar opposite. And if you have a look on social media, that polarization between those who want things to change and those who are trying to hang on to the way things are is deepening all the time. Mm. It is that othering that you talked about. So so with this organization, the first thing you would do is is make sure that everybody realizes everybody has a voice and every opinion is valid because it's an opinion. There are some behaviors that are not valid ever. If you want to change hearts and minds, you've got to let people have their say. So if you're dealing with a lot of people who are saying, why are we doing this? Why are we being so woke? Everything is fine as it is. How do you change their minds? You talk to them. You talk to them about what's important to them. You talk to them about why they want things to stay the same. If you start dealing with things in boxes, so women, race, LGBTQ+, neurodiversity, you deal with things in boxes, they will stay in the middle going, well, none of these things have got anything to do with me. We focus on that group. We give them a voice. In my experience, when you give people that sort of a group of voice, they debate things out between themselves. It's the easiest thing to facilitate. I like to sort of allow people to really say whatever they want to say in a room, that it's safe. Once somebody's expressed something, heard it out loud, very often they'll talk themselves out of it or somebody else in the room will do that. And I think that that's the first thing you've got to do is, is allow that conversation, take the lid off it, open the can of worms to begin with. Don't try and keep that can of worms in. The other thing is to focus on belonging rather than diversity, which people see as not being them if they're in the majority. So focus on this feeling of belonging and our need to belong is a fundamental human need as absolutely vital as our need for food, water and shelter. In fact, when you walk into a room, you are subconsciously assessing whether you belong there before any of your five senses are engaged. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's how fundamental it is. So. You tap into that as a concept rather than these people are in the minority and this is how you speak to them, which is quite frankly 
exclusive in itself because it's like saying, here's our club. You can come into it because we know how to talk to you now. But talk about belonging as a concept. We all know that feeling. We all know what it feels like when we don't belong somewhere. Everybody's had it. Everybody's felt that emotion. So if you want to connect people, connect them on a universal emotion. Use stories to be able to help people, stories that people can connect to. If you tell a story about what it's like being a racial minority, what it's like being somebody with autism, what it's like being a woman uh, sat at the top table on the board with the men, they can't relate because you can never be somebody else. You don't know what that's like. But if you get people to think about times that they have, you know, tell stories about the time when you, as I said earlier on, when we were chatting Sanchia, the time you arrived with the wrong dress code at a big event or the time when you went, for example, to facilitate something and it was very difficult and you think I'm very different to all of these people and this doesn't work, I don't think I quite belong here. Just those sort of stories that people can tap into and really use the power of those to connect people emotionally. One of the things that it was LinkedIn, I think, who did this, when they'd done their a big audit of, of the organization in terms of belonging and inclusion, they collected sound bites of what people had said it was like working there and very, very personal things and got um, actors to voice them out. And then they turned all the lights out in the room on the board and just played these. When they sort of the lights came up, half the people in the room were crying because they had no idea that this was the experience of people. So that feeling of every day I come in here, you know, before I get here, I will cry or you don't know what it's like when I get off the train at Canary Wharf and what it's like being a man of colour or a woman of colour. When Those things, we can relate to those feelings of it's that, it's important. Another thing is to, I always find is really good, is to bring in children. And I talk about this in my book, actually, which is if you have children, we all know that day that you first drop them off at school. And our biggest fear is that they're going to be on their own, they're going to be scared, and no one's going to play with them. So our biggest fear for our child at that point is that they're not going to feel like they belong. I mean, we catastrophize it in our heads such that we think our children might end up as social pariahs. But the reason we catastrophize it is because we know we feel that raw emotion. One thing that I've done with some clients is use reverse stories. So somebody tells a story about something that happened. So if it's a white middle-aged man telling a story, a leader, about something that had happened to his older child at work and the way they've been treated. And people tap into that emotion and then you switch it quickly and you say, that didn't happen to my child. That happened to a woman of colour in our organisation. And what you get then is people have this sort of, there's a moment of Why did I think it was less acceptable when it's somebody that I'm connected to? But they felt it then. And then they'll question themselves. Actually, it's not acceptable anyway. Mm. So, you know, using that and tapping into that, I think, is that's the way we will change hearts and minds. But what we cannot do is create another monster by disenfranchising those who have so far been in the majority. Yes. So there's quite a lot to do in this space, Helen. And uh, if people listening would like to find out more about the work that you're doing or want to get in touch with you, how could they do that? So either through Sheridan. So a lot of my work is delivered through Sheridan or 
through my website, which is belongingatwork.co.uk. And you can find a little bit more about our approach to things on there, which we very often deliver with the uh, Sheldon faculty. Excellent. Helen, I could talk to you for much, much longer. It's so fascinating listening to the way that you see the world. And I think that the work you're doing is is so important. So I hope that those listening have been inspired as much as I have and look forward to our next podcast. You can find out more about Helen and myself on the Sheridan Resolutions website. But I'm just passing on a very warm thank you, Helen, and look forward to our next next encounter. Thanks ever so much, Sanchia. It was a great conversation. Bye. Bye.